0: Welcome to Slow Stories, I'm Rachel Schwartzman, I'm a writer, consultant, and the creator and host of this podcast. For those of you just tuning in, I interview artists, entrepreneurs, and innovators who share slow stories and big ideas about living, working, and creating in our digital age. This episode begins with a story from Kate Litterer, who shares a novel that inspired her to slow down and embrace her creativity. Here's more
1: from Kate. Hello, my name is Kate Litterer, and I am a slow productivity coach who runs the blog The Tending Year, where I research and discuss productivity through the lens of slow living. The thing that recently caused me to slow down almost through an exciting slap in the face or bucket of cold water to the face was reading this book called Night Bitch by Rachel Yoder. In this book, Yoder's narrator, the main character, is a mother who used to be an artist and now is a stay-at-home mom, and her husband is usually away on business. So across the span of the book, the author takes on being a canine, being a dog, and through that she gains this intense energy and hunger and desire and creativity and connection, and reading it really inspired me to turn back to the things that are. Creative that are slow. So, for example, I started working on a zine that I've been dreaming about for a while, a very slow, hands on task that's not tied to what we would typically think about with productivity. Along with this, sort of the cherry on top was a quote from Rachel Yoder in an interview with Hazlitt where she says, I feel like underachieving can be an act of profound self care and radical feminism. To say, I'm not going to learn any more competencies I'm done with that I am my competencies and my talents are here to serve me and I'm going to protect those they're not going to be given away I'm not here to overachieve in service of other people I'm here to focus on my dreams and my goals so right now I'm feeling really inspired by Rachel Yoder and by her writing in Night Bitch and trying to slow down be present be competent and have fun making a zine Thank you so much again to
0: Kate for sharing. Again, the novel she mentioned is Night Bitch by Rachel Yoder, and you can learn more about Kate's work online at thetendingyear.com. Now here's my conversation with Kayla Mayori. What we leave behind can still shape what moves us forward. This idea is at the core of Kayla Mayori's poignant debut novel, Mother in the Dark, In this quietly captivating story, readers follow Anna, a young woman who finds herself at a crossroads as her complicated past converges with the present. As Anna's childhood and family life unfurl, we meet various characters who inspire deeper reflection about what it means to be a daughter, sister, and friend. For Kayla, fiction is a lens to better understand reality. And as mother in the dark comes out following a period of prolonged distance and isolation kayla's book is a powerful reminder not to turn away from the people that we love and in this interview kayla shared more about the origins of this story her relationship with nature and what she's learned about family leaving and time An element of darkness hums throughout this book, but by the last page, Kayla's nuanced exploration of family and forgiveness shows us there's always light to be found. And after hearing from Kayla in this episode, you'll see what I mean. So without giving too much more away, here's my conversation with Kayla Mayori, author of Mother in the Dark.
2: So I know this isn't a super unique answer, but I do feel like it's hard to separate who I am as a writer and who I am person especially when the writing is going well this really magical thing happens where i see my entire life through the lens of what i'm writing whether that's going for a coffee or going for a long walk or sitting on the subway or hearing a friend tell their own story i'll start to observe them even the way that their foot is jiggling on the couch and I'll start to think, hmm, how can I incorporate this in my novel in some way? So there are moments in my life where all I'm doing is taking notes on the little note section on my phone, and I cannot forget the fact that I'm a writer.
0: That's good to know for me. Next time we get together, I'll know I'm being (laughs) studied.
1: (laughs) Just observing you.
2: But I'm also, so that's obviously the creative aspect of my life, but I've been in admin work for six or seven years and it sounds so strange, but it really satisfies this other part of my brain that wants to organize. And it's a lot of busy work, you know, with Excel sheets and calendars and running around taking care of other people's things. And I've actually just started a new job up at... Columbia's School of the Arts, working for the deans there. And I love it so much because I'll be there for eight hours and then I'll look at the time. I'm like, wow, I've been sitting here at my desk. And you'd think I'd be depressed about it, but I'm not because it really gives me this craving for creativity and reading and writing. And I was, you know, at home for two years working remotely during COVID. And I wasn't reading and writing that often, and I really think it's this busy work that forces me to want to slow down when I get home, and I can feel now right at my fingertips. I'm ready to start working on something. I don't know what it is yet. I haven't started yet, but I know that it's this new job that's sort of reinvigorating me and making me want to go back to my roots as a writer. So fingers crossed on that
0: front. (laughs) I mean, I think that's so important to share. I think when people think of being a writer now, there's still that romantic lens and there's no room for quote unquote busy work, but I would imagine that helps you kind of cultivate discipline.
2: Absolutely, I need it. And I take full advantage of my 45-minute commute on the subway up to Columbia, because I'm in Brooklyn now. I'm listening to podcasts on literature, or I'm reading, or I'm taking notes on just my own thoughts that I think could relate to writing somehow. And it's crazy that being busier allows more room for creativity. And I totally had that romantic view of, I'm going to be living in the city, I'm going to be a waitress, and I'm going to be a writer. And it was so demoralizing. I hated it. I was serving for two years. And don't get me wrong. I love the culture. And I love being around a bunch of other young artists who are just working in the restaurant industry to make money, essentially. But, you know customers treat you as if you're not a real human or as if you have no intelligence. But there was that sort of romantic, I would be in the corner scribbling notes on my little menu pads that I would take uh, customers' orders on. But at the end of the day, it was not for me. I could only do it for two years. And I was like, that's it. I'm out. I need to be out of bed. And that's where I've been ever since. Yeah,
0: it's definitely not slow. No.
2: <laughs> but it was all a good experience in the end. It made my its way into the book. So there's that.
0: I definitely want to get into talking about Mother in the Dark, but I'm wondering if you have a story in mind or one that you've come across recently, whether it's been an article, poem, song, another book that made you slow down or sort of redefined your definition of family.
2: We spoke about this recently, but I had a pretty intense dry spell where I could not read for about six months. And it was really starting to terrify me because I thought if I'm not a reader, Will this lead to me not being a writer? What is happening? I would begin books and put them down. And I think it had a lot to do with publication anxiety. I just couldn't sit still with another person's words because I started to think about my own words and how I wanted to change them, but it was too late to change them. But all of that changed this summer. I read Anna Hoagland's The Long Answer and it is just I mean, I read it extremely fast. I was on the beach with my sisters and they were yelling at me because I wouldn't put the book down. But I also read it slowly because I would physically put the book down on my lap and just stare ahead and think about what I just read after almost every chapter. And it's this beautiful meditation on female friendship. And a lot of reviewers are pointing out that it's about abortion and pregnancy and miscarriages, and all of that is existing in the novel. But for me, it's more about the beauty and power of storytelling and the ways that stories fuel us and sustain us and heal us and how if you're going through a rough moment, you will turn to a friend or a stranger and seek out a story that they have or they can maybe prove to you that you're going to be okay because they experienced some form of this. And most of the novel really is women going for long walks or sitting at a bar or talking on the phone and telling each other their life stories. It's so tender and the content can be a bit depressing at times, but it's, I just felt enveloped and warmth the entire time that I was reading it because the author is so thoughtful and tender and I've been recommending it to everybody I come across. I'm still thinking about it and I read it in July.
0: Sounds so affirming. Yes. (laughs) Is there a passage that's remained with you? It sounds like there are many, but one that might be worth sharing here.
2: Absolutely. I could see it more clearly now, now that I was no longer with her, the ways I'd been the one imposing the distance between us, not her. I'd thought it was her choice and I was honoring it, always waiting for her to call me, never making the first gesture, but that was not so. And for how long had it been this way? Her gestures were so plainly there and I hadn't recognized them as such. The reason I love this passage so much is because the novel is also about adult sisterhood, which I sort of rarely find in literature. In this particular instance, we've spent the whole novel believing that the narrator's sister has been sort of distant and not wanting to see her. And the narrator is honoring that and just accepting that her sister wants space. And then we realize in the end, I don't think it's really spoiling in any way, but we realize, no, she's had it wrong. Her sister actually has been making an effort to see her and she's been the one pulling away. And that dynamic, sisters are so strange it's the strangest relationship in the world i'm the eldest of three and truly this happened a couple of weeks ago we were screaming in the bathroom about some trivial fight and then two seconds later we were cheersing our glasses of wine and taking selfies together (laughs) (laughs) it really is crazy the ways that you can sort of heal these things that seem like monstrous intense issues and then turn out to be nothing because, you know, there is that unconditional love. But I just, I really related to that in Anna's novel. And to me, it was really one of the greatest aspects of it.
0: Yeah, that passage is amazing. I mean, to your point about those kind of tricky sibling dynamics, I'm an only child. So I'm always interested to hear how boundaries are established, but also broken down. I've always kind of thought of having a sibling as having like a built-in mirror They are there to kind of show you things that maybe you can't see from your vantage point in the sibling relationships I've known seems to be that kind of reckoning.
2: <laughs> oh, that's so beautiful. I love that. It's also, it's funny with sisters how those dynamics arise. The second you go home, you return to your younger selves. I'm in New York and my entire family is in Boston. And sometimes over the holidays or special occasions, we'll all be in the same house together. And even at this age, and keep in mind, none of us are children. I'm 31, the other 30, the other is 29. So we're all adults. And if one of my sisters goes out with their friends to go drinking, I cannot sleep until they are home in their beds and they are safe. I still feel like I'm their little protector, which they would hate to hear me say like, okay, Kayla, but it just (laughs) has never, it it never leaves. And And it really amplifies when I'm with them.
0: It sounds really special.
2: It is. It really is.
0: You mentioned that you read this book with your sisters at the beach. We're at the height of summer right now. And it's always interesting for me to think about family during these months. I get nostalgic for summer break or just that kind of free feeling that is equated with summer. How are you thinking about this time right now?
2: I get really nostalgic for my family this time of year because everyone's at the Cape at the beach together most weekends. And I'm in steamy, sticky New York City. But I totally. Know What you mean. I feel it with summer, but I also feel it even more with fall. You know, Mm -hmm. Lid Falls are just such a special, nostalgic place for me, and and that's when I get the most homesick, and I want to be eating, like, apple cinnamon donuts with my family or sitting at the table with my mom and watching the leaves change outside. Crazy how seasons do remind you of the most sweet memories from childhood.
0: It's so true, and you capture seasons and time so beautifully in Mother in the Dark, You know, it's a story that I think many people will recognize themselves in. It's quiet, but gripping. And, you know, it explores family, grief. I saw a lot of acceptance and redemption, too. But for those who don't know the inspiration behind the book, can you share a little bit about how you arrived at this story?
2: Yeah, I began the novel eight years ago which seems fitting for a podcast about slow stories because I've been working on this for a long time. I was in my second semester at Columbia and I was haunted in a beautiful way, haunted by an image of a woman who was living in her nightgown and her wool socks and sitting in the living room drinking her iced coffee from morning till night until the ice had melted. And I realized that these were memories of my mother in the years after her own mother's death. and. I kept returning to this image, and I wrote it in a million different ways. There are just so many quiet moments of this mother sitting in the living room with her children or sitting at the kitchen table, and it took a long time to really fictionalize it and create the plot, I feel like that's what I struggle with most. My notebook and my notepad are just scenes and scenes of these delicate moments where nothing is really happening. It's character building, right? Um, so, so that's where the novel began. And so it, be, it began with a memory of my mother, but certainly now has become something completely different.
0: It had to have been a powerful image to stay with you in that way.
2: Yeah, and it was also the first time that I was really away from home because I'd gone to college in Boston, just a half hour away from my family. So I think being in New York, just I, I was flooded with memories that I hadn't really acknowledged when I was in my teens and my college years. So I had this excellent professor at Columbia, Elisa Chappelle, and she had so much inspiring advice that has stuck with me for years. And one of them was... She's only interested in authors who have left their bloody fingerprints on the page, meaning that they've given up some part of themselves to the reader. And this is also in relation to writing about family or people you love. If you're going to exploit somebody in some way, you have to be willing to exploit yourself as well. Show those less than flattering aspects of yourself. And... Also, in writing about family, she said, "Do you need to protect your work from your family and protect your family from your work. Just that delicate balance of not wanting your family and any guilt to interfere with this work that you're meant to be writing, but also wanting to be delicate in how you do that, because these are people that you love and that you don't want to hurt. I did keep my family from my work and my work from my family for years and years. They really, they they didn't read it until the galleys were out. And I thought that it was very wise advice.
0: I mean, that's hard. That's really hard. Do you think you had to leave and create distance in order to really commit to that when writing?
2: Yes, I had to really get out of my own way and force myself to be ignorant of the fact that the catalyst for the novel was a memory. And again, it has taken on a life of its own. And I don't connect with it the way that I did when I was 23, writing it down for the first time, because it has changed so much. But I mean, it was difficult. These were truly the darkest years of my life, was writing this novel, because I was confronting things from my childhood that I had been burying for years. And There was even a moment, and I have an essay about this coming out week of publication, but there were moments where I truly started confusing my life with the life of my narrator. I would be out to dinner with friends and I would say something thinking that it was a memory of my own, but really it had never happened in my real life. And it also was warping my perception of my mother. I was believing that she was crueler than she really was and that she was Diana, the mother in my novel. And thankfully, once it was all out and all on the page, I had the time and the space to sort of regulate those emotions and get out of this warpy, weird time in my life. And I no longer have those feelings, thankfully. I can separate my mother from Diana in the book, but it was a rough period. I mean, I've
0: never really written fiction before, but obviously most stories are drawn from some sort of real life element. So to be able to kind of create that boundary probably takes a lot of muscle memory and building and sounds exhausting.
2: It was. It was exhausting and it was making me so angry, but I also was addicted to it. I couldn't stop because I knew that what I was writing, somebody would be able to relate to. And so I'm happy I stuck with it. Eight years later.
0: (laughs) You know, on the subject of leaving, I loved your explorations of this legacy of leaving and being left. I think that's at the core of so many of Anna's relationships. And I'm curious, you know, as you talk about kind of inhibiting her mind and her life, how did writing Anna's story change your perception of what it means to leave someone or something behind, whether it's a house, a past, a self, or another person?
2: Oh, I love this question. It taught me a lot about the ways that we leave people, and that there are good and healthy ways to leave people, and there are really destructive, cruel ways to leave people. And I think it was really important for me, especially with this novel. Although there are moments where Diana, the mother, is just completely wicked and, and cruel and emotionally manipulative, Anna. And, you know, this day and age, there's a lot to be said about us protecting ourselves and setting boundaries and leaving people who hurt us. But I, my own personal take is that Anna left in a really cruel way. And the way that she left also echoed all of the things that she hates about her mother. She thinks that she is not important to anyone in her life, which is a really selfish way to relationships, I think. And, you know, she abandons her mother, but also her sisters who really didn't do anything wrong. And for their whole life, Anna has been their protector. And And I understand other people will, will read this and be like, oh, she did the right thing. She's leaving this really toxic environment. But I've always felt a tenderness towards this house and this family and this complicated mother figure. And I think that Anna did it the wrong way. But hopefully you see as the novel progresses that she tries to rectify that, maybe, or she will try to rectify that in the end. It's very open-ended.
0: I mean, I moved around quite a bit when I was younger, so I really connected with Anna's experiences of finding herself on unsolid ground, Mm -hmm. especially in the midst of a really unstable family life. In your opinion, how does moving move a family closer together or apart?
2: I'm a really sensitive person and I was a very sensitive child and I remember, I mean, there's that scene in the novel where they're all in the car and they have the boxes are tipping and they're moving from their home in Everett to their home in Topsfield and Anna feels this sense of safety because they're all together. She can see everybody and I think she feels most at ease when all of her family is in sight and she can feel their presence and she knows that nobody's missing and moving and the concept of one of the parents, I mean, she fears at one point that her mother will decide, oh, I'm not coming with you guys and you're going to move without me. And in my own experience, moving has always brought me closer to my family. As a a child, you're in a new environment and you need to be cloistered because it's the one thing that feels familiar to you. I remember I used to have reoccurring nightmares of there being like a Wizard of Oz type tornado plummeting through my neighborhood and we'd all be running in the car like my mom and my dad and my sisters and I and the dog and my mom would literally be standing in the driveway in her nightgown looking up at the sky and the car would be lifting off the ground and be like, mom, mom, get in, get in. You have to come with us. And she'd be like, no, I'm going to stay. This nightmare stayed with me until, I mean, I'm pretty sure I was having this nightmare when I was at Columbia as a grad student. This idea of somebody getting left behind or not moving with you.
0: Well, I think that fear of loss is also so present throughout. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but there are a couple of instances where Anna is with her family, but she thinks, please don't let anything bad happen. So it's almost that like anticipation.
2: Yeah, it's like her mantra. And even the rest of the girls, they sleep with their doors closed, but Anna sleeps with hers open because she wants to be able to hear if they're in danger and she wants to be able to make sure that she can gather everybody and protect them, which is something I still do today. I don't understand people who close their doors at night. I want to be able to hear if there's a man coming in to murder. Ah.
0: Yeah, well, I think that's probably a result of so much that's happening in the world, which is probably a whole other conversation. conversation. But that feeling of bracing for those little losses and those big losses kind of hums throughout Mother in the Dark. And it also kind of adds texture to this really big emotional tug of war between Anna and her family, particularly her mother. And so I think it would be great to have you read a passage that sort of demonstrates that dynamic, particularly in chapter eight.
2: So this is a moment in the book where the father has announced that they're moving to, it's a mix between the suburbs and a farmer's town. And they currently live outside the city of Boston in a lower class neighborhood. And the mother has been sort of pitting the girls against their father and wanting them to take a side. And in this scene, she asks them, "Um, if you could choose between the two of us, who would you choose, me or your father? And the girls are circled around her while she's in the tub and they're comforting her. And in this moment, she also has a bottle of pills by the tub that Anna notices. And this is what happens shortly after. When she finished her bath, my sisters swirled the filmy water. My mother rose slowly from the tub, revealing the ripples of her stomach and the wiry pubic hair below. Her legs were unshaven, spider veins like the cracks in porcelain. Eventually, at dusk, she emerged from her spell. She scooped dollops of ricotta cheese and honey on toast, set napkins and placemats on the table. Briefly, my mother was joyful, basking in the falseness of our happy quartet. We scooped pistachio ice cream from the tub until our tongues went numb. While we ate, she finger-combed her hair raking through the wet knots, her arms wobbling, skin sagging from her bones like hung clothes. All around us, the blackened windows reflected the lighted rooms of our house, eclipsing the outside world. I avoided our reflections, the distorted, faceless figures seated at the table, disturbed by the way we morphed into sameness. I didn't want to be related to this creature, this imposter who'd come to stay. I focused on the Italian farm girl figurines that sat on the shelf behind my mother, their glassy faces gleaming beneath the yellow light, their bodies swimming in skirts that drowned their feet. My sisters and I liked to point out our favorites. Mine was the girl in the lilac skirt, a gray stringy haired puppy propped in her wicker basket. I was pulled away from this when I noticed my mother beginning to fade, her head bobbing, eyes growing heavy. She tongued the cold spoon until green dripped from her lips and chin. She dug in for more, but opened her mouth too early when the ice cream was still inches from her tongue. I didn't know it then, but she was high. She burrowed for something in her pocket, popped two or three orange pills in her mouth. It looked like she was eating little bugs. Her head lolled when the drugs took over, her words becoming elongated, warped. Soon she was asleep. This gave me an aching feeling in my stomach, a feeling of worry. At least she looked peaceful, gentle. I draped a fleece over her shoulders and left her sleeping at the table, led my sisters upstairs where the three of us lay snug tight in one bed. We craved the comfort of proximity, warm bubblegum breath hitting cheeks, soft legs brushing. My sisters grew motionless beside me and I resisted drifting off, lulled by their sleeping sounds. I envisioned seeing us from above, a tangled unit. The image brought me comfort. I reeled on the cusp of unconsciousness, clinging to the temporary calm, the warm stillness. I was aware that it could vanish at any moment.
0: Sets the tone, really, for what's to come. As Anna reflects on a lot of these early experiences in her life, we see how much of an observer she really is, and something that's to her detriment is that she's often mulling over the past and i think you use time in a really compelling way to demonstrate the arc of this family you dip into her past but also diana's past as a child in the 70s and so i want to talk about time a little bit and start by asking when do you think reflecting on the past can be nourishing Mm.
2: There is certainly an unhealthy, ruminating type of reflecting on the past, which I fall victim to often, but I think it can be most positive when reflecting and writing about it fictionally, because fiction is, it's the one time where you're able to Look at the cast of people in your life and turn them over and see every side of them and all of the possibilities and consider the things that they didn't say or didn't do and things they should have done and actions they didn't take. And for me, that has proven to be a healthy way to reflect on the past because I'm considering other people's needs and wants and desires. I hope that answers your question.
0: It does. Makes me think of fiction in a new light. Makes me think that to write fiction is to
2: have hope. Yeah. And fiction teaches us so much about reality, I think. You know, I've come across a lot of men who will say that they don't read fiction. They only read nonfiction because they want to learn something, which is a very (laughs) typical thing to say. And I'm just like, ah, don't know if I totally agree with that. but.
0: Yeah, that's a very boring, narrow way to engage with stories. I read and write nonfiction, but I think stories like this give us space to process beyond just fact. You know, Anna can't always trust what's happening around her at that point when she's younger. But do you think she trusts herself?
2: Oh, wow. I don't think so. I think at one point she becomes, she's in such a lonely state. And I think loneliness creates a form of narcissism where you really do believe everyone in your life is out to get you. And when she's in New York, I think she does trust herself and believe that her mother has done all of these horrendous things, which She has. I mean, she's not an unreliable narrator in that way. But I think she, towards the end of the novel, is beginning to maybe question. Part of the reason she's not going home is because she feels guilty. It's not just that she's angry at her mother or she's afraid to go home. It's also that she knows that she's done something wrong too. And she's enabled and she's not always been gracious with her emotions. So I don't think she trusts herself, but I think there's hope in her returning home, that she will be able to trust herself.
0: And to be able to revisit the past in a more informed way.
2: Yeah, exactly. In a more gracious, open way, willing to hear everybody's perspective and not just think about the ways that you were harmed.
0: It's probably work that has to be done for an entire lifetime. And I think to be able to do that, you really have to be grounded in a sense of presence I'm not sure if you listened to my interview with Lisa Tedeo, but she mentioned that a lot of her writing deals with being so stuck in the past. And I want to ask a question that I posed to her, which is, you know, what is the present to a
2: writer and how has the present changed you? Oh, this is a hard one. I can talk about how I get myself to the present, which is slowing down and writing by hand. I've, I'm have i not the kind of person who can fill an entire notebook from start to finish with my novel but if I'm really struggling to be sitting in a scene with characters I will pull out my notebook and force myself to start over and write that scene by hand and sometimes even make weird charts and like seat people around tables and it's funny I've never actually reflecting on this it's kind of a strange thing to do but taking your hand to paper it slows you down and forces you to be in the present I think I mean it's a hard question because I am Anna my narrator and as well as myself I am so often stuck in the past I'm so nostalgic and I'm always ruminating and I'm turning things over over and over again and talking about the same stories over and over again of my past so that's why this question is so hard for me because I think I struggle to stay in the present
0: I mean it makes sense it's hard to think about being in the present with anything in life with our attention being pulled in a million different directions at any given time
2: it's such an important question and I need to strategize (laughs) more to make sure that I'm in the present when I'm writing. Because I'm also kind of a nut when I'm writing. I don't need to be in a quiet space. I have no routines. I have written pages upon pages in the kitchen while my mother and sisters are fighting or laughing or cleaning. I can write with the TV on. Strangely enough, I cannot write in cafes. I refuse to do it. Maybe it's the pressure of sitting in an environment where you're expected to write something and nothing can ever come out. But I don't get distracted easily when I'm writing, I guess. Well,
0: that's a gift. I need I I mean I need the exact opposite. I need everybody to go. I need it to be quiet. I need it to be kind of dark. As we speak, I'm actually working on my first book, which is still weird to say. But I can only really write now from like eleven to twelve at night.
2: Wow. Oh, that's so interesting.
0: Yeah. It's after John has gone to bed, Pepper is tucked in. Pepper is my lion head rabbit for those who don't know.
2: Do you at a desk or on the couch or in bed? I know people write in bed, which I used to do, but I can't do that anymore.
0: I can't do it. I have a home office, which I feel so grateful for. I have to shut the door. I know we don't like shutting the door at night, but I have to shut the door. (laughs) (laughs) And, And hope for the best. But yeah, it's the only way I can stay present.
2: Do you play music? No, I need silence. Yeah, I I, I wish I could. I cannot play music when I'm writing. It's the one thing that I can have the TV on in the background, but I cannot listen to music. I don't know what it is.
0: Music is a very triggering thing almost. I mean, it's so beautiful or it's so powerful. I get that. I feel like I would become overwhelmed.
2: No, yeah. And it also music can bring you back to another point in time. And I think that's why I can't listen to it while I'm writing. And also you'll start singing along to the lyrics.
0: I get nervous because if I'm listening to something and trying to write something else down, I'll start writing down whatever is playing. So it's like that phenomenon. Can't have that. (laughs) What about nature? How do you feel about nature in terms of an environment? And I ask that too, because your descriptions of nature in Mother in the Dark I felt really captured the interiority of the characters and their relationships. You know, at one point, you wrote, On warm nights, I sat by the giant pit next door, legs dangling over the edge while the gravel pricked my thighs. At sunset hours, I liked to go down there to think and to dream and be alone. No one would look for me there. Behind me, the windows of the house blinked when figures passed. I thought of the running pipes and buzzing lights water heaters and vents until the house became a living thing and i felt sad knowing the five of us would not always be a part of it and then later another really poignant passage you write that night in my dreams i heard the sounds of my mother whimpering and pacing her barefoot steps muffled in the yard the hem of her nightgown was grass-stained dip-dyed green streaks of dirt climbed her pale legs drenched in a moon bath a woodland fairy without wings Tell me about your relationship with nature. How do you experience it and write about it?
2: Mm, This is funny. My sisters would be rolling their eyes because they definitely don't see me as a nature girl. I was always 10 steps behind them when we were children going into the woods to find coyote dens or hunting for salamanders or bringing in toads. I always wanted to be a part of it with them, but it wasn't natural to me to be in nature. And it wasn't until... I saw my book cover, and I sort of got this Mother Nature vibe, I was like, oh, there's a lot of nature happening in my novel, and I think what's happening is you're actively seeing me as the writer being nostalgic for home, because I was writing this when I was in New York City, which is completely devoid of nature, (laughs) and it's impossible for me to think about my childhood, and think about my family, and even my mother, and not think about nature, even. To this day, when I go home, we sit at the kitchen table by this window and you see all of the bird feeders and we have these hideous turkeys that come and some in the backyard. And my mom's like, oh, Kayla, they're so beautiful. Come see. I'm like, these things are so atrocious. <laughs> <Turkeys>. <laughs> but yeah, it's impossible to think about home and not think about nature. And it's also a moment where, I mean, nature automatically slows you down. And you start thinking about what you can smell and see and feel. And I think that's probably apparent in those passages.
0: Yeah, you write about it so beautifully. So I had to ask, and I think to better illustrate that relationship between the natural world and Anna's reflections on her family, let's have you read another passage.
2: So... This is a moment where the mother is sitting on the front porch and she's with the dog and the girls can hear her through the screen door saying, where is everybody, Beansy? Why is no one hanging out with us? And so the girls kind of begrudgingly like, okay, that's our cue. Go down to the front porch to spend some time with their mother, who's increasingly just a little odd, not entirely on planet Earth. And here's that moment. I'm going to put a fairy garden back here, my mother announced, rocking, unperturbed by the wind, so the fairies will come. Sophia looked to me, confused. Leah backed away, her heels crunching on dry leaves, as if she thought she would catch something. A gust of wind and the gates swung open, clanked against the fence, several beats. We pinched our collars to keep warm. They come, you know, if you're real quiet, They wear flowers for clothes. Sometimes I'd recoil from her, unnerved by her fantasies and how easily she slipped into them, wishing for the mother I'd known in Everett. But there was something endearing about her, running her fingers from wrist to elbow in a nervous pattern. A part of me felt strangely powerful, more knowing, capable of disabusing my mother of her strange notions. Unlike my sisters, I was intrigued by her constructed universes. I wanted to know if she believed the things she said. Have you seen them? Do they talk to you? Oh yeah, I can understand them. I don't know if you'd be able to. She sort of shrugged, dismissive. Can dad understand them? I asked, knowing what I was doing, that I was too old to be asking these questions in any serious way. But she wasn't thinking about that. She made a sound of disbelief, rolled her eyes. You kidding me? He doesn't understand nothing, your father. At the edge of our yard, orange slices beamed on the trees. She had pierced them on the branches days earlier, leaving them as an offering for the weaker birds that hadn't migrated before summer's end. She spread some of the pieces on the porch railing, hoping the birds would come up close. They never did. I inhaled the citrus smell, Wafts of it feathering through the smoke. Pine cones lay scattered on the ground. She had glazed them with peanut butter and rolled them in a layer of seeds. Against the thick backdrop of woods, animals flapped and scurried. The forest was alive. That's what I'll do, my mother said build a fairy garden. She nodded, as if we'd given her permission. The four of us remained outside while my mother talked to the wind until the pink sun receded behind the trees. Eventually, we stayed away. Even Sophia stopped trying to climb on her, to lean against her while they watched movies. She didn't try to pull at her hair or trace her unruly brows with her fingers. At night, we didn't call for her when we woke from nightmares, but turned to each other, slipping into each other's beds. I tried not to linger on what was happening. Consigning such things to some unreachable region of my mind. Other times she was outright cruel. One afternoon, when I was eleven or twelve, I lifted my arms to tie my hair when I noticed her watching me. Then she burst into choking laughter. You're not shaving yet? I snapped my arms to my sides, each strand of hair suddenly noticeable against my skin. I didn't know it was time, I said, hoping she might soften. I suppose I did know but she hadn't told me, and I liked the feeling, lying in bed at night, fingers curled in the warmth of my underarms, grazing the soft hairs. Use one of the disposable razors, my mother added, in the bathroom closet. As she leaned back in the chair, her legs met at the ankles, too thick to cross. I looked to her spot on the living room couch, at the dimple in the cushion where her body pressed into the leather day after day, a ragged green blanket spooled into a pile on the floor. It would be too easy to shame her back. You're like a man, Sophia said, laughing harder. Leah and Sophia giggled into their palms. She lived for these moments, for the chance to pit us against each other. Still, we could sit with her for hours over Lipton tea and Italian cookies, repelled and transfixed by her need to be one of us. At the time, I was reeking of self consciousness, my skinny arms and shoulders constantly towed downward, shrinking. I was often told at school to speak up and got good at deflecting attention, at slinking away. I avoided my reflection in window fronts and hallway mirrors, beneath the overhead lights and restaurant bathrooms, which illuminated my worst features. There was something unnerving about my large eyes, my sharp chin, cheeks hollowed out. My hair was thin and flowing away. All you saw was face. I'd become something foreign in my family. The odd one sitting in the corner, eyes shiny like glass. We would watch horror movies together, my mother, my sisters, and I. The four of us pinned to the couch with our knees up. Blankets spiraled around our legs for protection, even in the heat of summer. If a strange, spooky girl appeared on screen, my mother and sisters would laugh and point and say, That's Anna. I pretended not to mind, wearing this peculiarity as a badge. I refused to tease back. They were loud and opinionated. I was not. I often wondered if there was a girl somewhere who shared this feeling of detachment from those she loved, from herself. Was there another girl who looked and talked like me, who performed the same actions as me, maybe at the exact same moment? Another girl drinking a glass of skim milk, sitting cross-legged on the pantry floor alone, eating handfuls of baking chocolate. Another girl looking out the passenger side window of her father's truck, watching the raindrops race down the glass, feeling bad when they hit the bottom and lost their shape. If she did exist, I never met her.
0: How does it feel to read something like that back
2: or aloud? This one really does remind me of my teenage years, and I really was reeking of (laughs) self-consciousness. It's weird (laughs) to say it out loud, because I've never read that passage before. But I identify with that little Anna. I feel for her. I mean, I think we were
0: both probably lucky in the sense that, yes, being a teenager is so hard, but we didn't have the pressures of a life online. Teenagers today have.
2: Oh, I can't imagine it. It would wreck me. It does wreck me at this age. So I can't imagine having Instagram when I was a little 12-year-old or 13-year-old.
0: I think I mentioned this, the book to me kind of gives off this vibe of 4 p.m. in the winter. And Mm -hmm. it's interesting to think about technology and social media and how often they play a role in shaping the vibe long before people have even read the book. And I'm just curious to hear how those platforms and that expectation has sort of shaped your understanding of mood and
2: story. I'm somebody who I'm ashamed to admit is quite addicted to both Instagram and TikTok. And it scares me because I'm somebody who lives and breathes reading, writing, and even I struggle to get through a chapter without then checking my phone. And I wonder how an ordinary person who just reads as a casual hobby is possibly able to get through a novel. Instagram has a negative impact, I think, ultimately, (laughs) on writing and being a creative person and just being felt forced to create this cool writer persona. But TikTok... Book talk. I joined it because one of my favorite things in the world is to recommend books or to really get to know a person and ask them, like, what's the last thing you read that you really loved? And then trying to find the next thing that they'll really love. And I didn't expect to make so many little internet friends on Book Talk who aren't doing it for show. They're actually there because they want to talk about books and have these little book clubs. I'm not a part of any of the book clubs, but Book Talk has been a really special place, even though it's also a bit of an addiction. And I've definitely fallen asleep with my phone in my hand, which you would not approve of, especially on this podcast. It's something I'm working on. I mean, at the end of the day, I think the digital age is not helping us as writers. But Book Talk was a nice little perk.
0: Listen, I struggle with it too. So I think it's ebb and flow, just having the conversation around these things that pull out our attention, but to your point, also bring us a lot of joy. It's not as simple as just disconnecting. But I wonder as I kind of get to know the publishing world and see how enmeshed it is with social media, where the opportunity is for writers to really use it in a way that's healthy and honest.
2: Yeah, I think you need to have an awareness and be honest with yourself with how much time you're spending on these apps. But definitely it helps you reach a readership and an audience, which is a beautiful thing. I don't think I realized how many readers were out there. You know, in MFAs, it's so doomy and gloomy about how literature is dying and no one wants to read. And I definitely do not feel that way any longer being on BookTok.
0: Yeah, I don't think reading or writing is is dying. It's just changing so quickly. And I wonder too, how would you describe your relationship with Pace and how has it evolved?
2: It has been difficult I'm, what, a couple of weeks out before a pub date, and I am running around like a chicken with its head cut off. And it's not even it's just publicity stuff. It's also having a new job. But actually sitting here with you is the first time in several days where I've felt like I've slowed down and, and sat at a leisurely pace and thought and thoughtful about the book and about my life. And it's so it's so nice, so thank you. Of course. I've been craving to slow down, and I'm honestly... I feel like I shouldn't say this, but I'm kind of craving for the fall, for this moment to sort of blow over and for me to get back to just sitting in my apartment and reading because I haven't done that in weeks. It's funny because publishing a novel is so slow for so long, and then all of a sudden you are slammed with emails of things. And it's all good, exciting things, but all of these tasks that you now have to do and supplementary nonfiction pieces and posting on social media, preparing for events, it's just its a lot.
0: When the moment does pass, when the initial hype or attention dies down, how do you think this book will exist in your life? Where do you want it to sit in the realm of your writing practice and in your family's life too?
2: Mm. I literally just picked it up to hold it and think about this question. (laughs) It's really hard. I already feel myself disconnecting and pulling away from it. And it makes me kind of sad. But I think that's a good thing. I think that's what's supposed to happen when the book comes out into the world. And... I don't really identify with Anna any longer, except for that passage about teenagehood. And so I hope that this book will exist as a feeling of pride, I guess. I mean, it's been like the biggest dream of my life since I was like 18. When I walk past it now, I do. It's like this little glimmer. Oh my gosh, I can't believe this is sitting in my apartment. So I guess, yeah, I hope it's something that I can remain proud of. It's so hard looking through this book There are already so many sentences that I want to change, but I'm told that never goes away.
0: Well, that's why you'll write a second book. (laughs) Exactly. As a creative person and as an engaged person, I have found that asking questions is the only way to move us forward. So as you sort of reflect on the many ideas we've talked about in this conversation i wonder what question you hope people will start asking you more often whether it's in the context of writing family friendship time
2: so i've noticed that everyone from friends to acquaintances to strangers the first thing they ask and I tell them about my novel is, oh, did that really happen to you? Or, oh, are you are you talking about your life? And trust me, I understand the curiosity. I do it myself all the time when I'm reading, especially when I'm reading my friends. But when it's a stranger, it does feel like this really sort of uncomfy, invasive question that I feel like I'm forced to answer and I don't want to. Also, it, it takes away the magic of the book. I'm not important. And important. I, I am not... Who you're supposed to be focusing on. So I think I want people to focus more on craft in the process when they're asking me questions, which this podcast has done exactly that. And I also hope that readers are gentle with these characters who I think can easily be villainized, especially Diana. I have so much love for her. And I am afraid people are going to think she's just pure evil, but she's not to me. And, you know, there are moments where she's a bad mother, but not a bad person. So
0: I mean, that's just true of life. We all have our moments. And I think without giving it away by the end of the book, readers will be reminded of our humanity and how fragile and imperfect it is. That doesn't mean we should turn away from it or the people that we love.
2: Yeah, exactly. That's beautifully said.
0: And on that note, let's close things out by having you read one more passage from Mother in the Dark.
2: This is a moment where Anna has returned home briefly and she gets in an argument with her sister. And this is after they've walked away from each other. The distance between us was too great. I let that happen. I didn't know my sisters anymore. I didn't know Leah, but I wanted to ask her, do you remember the night she left you at the playground? your eyes squinting in the glare of headlights as she swooped around the lot. I cried for her to turn around, but she said we had to teach you a lesson. She sped down pockmarked roads wearing only her nightgown and wool socks, a chalky patch of cereal milk blemishing the collar. I dug my nails into wet palms, angry with myself for not jumping out of the car right then, for not running and throwing my bigger arms around your smaller ones. We tore past the cornfields and onto the main road, where she unrolled the window and let the wind whip her dirty curls, shouting about how you were going to be the end of her. You were out of control. In the back seat, I tugged at my fingers, pinked and warmed, tugged with such force I thought they might pop from their sockets. I hated her for abandoning you, but I didn't tell her this. I remember thinking you were going to freeze out there, even though it was only October and you had on your windbreaker and your Pocahontas hat. I imagined finding you on the ground, eyes coated in mucus, lips blue. What would we do with you then? When we came back some minutes later, you were standing by the swing set, towing the dirt with your light-up sneakers. Your lower lip was thrusting out, but I could see the swing shaking wildly behind you, and I knew you'd just hopped off. You only wanted her to think you'd been having a miserable time. She bopped the horn with her fist, and you knew to come running. I could smell the cold coming off you when you slid in beside me. I took your hand. Remember what she did that night? When we pulled into the garage and you crawled out from the back seat? She knelt bare-kneed on the concrete and pressed her face against your hard little stomach, begged you not to tell him in her desperate whisper strains. Her nails slipped as she clawed your coat tears puddled the fabric. You reached for a red hair strand. You took her in, her ruddy cheeks, lashes clumpy wet with mascara. I hadn't left the car but sunk myself deeper into it until I was crouched on the floor, my legs crumpled under the seat, afraid of her crying, of your mothering. She did a lot of things back then, but you seem to have forgotten. Judging by the hours you spend at her kitchen table, the afternoons you share over packaged pastries and coffee, when I can barely manage a phone call. Tell me, Mia, how do you forget? Can you show me how it's done? That
0: was Kayla Mayori author of mother in the dark you can purchase mother in the dark anywhere books are sold though we recommend supporting local and independent bookstores if you can you can also follow kayla on social at Kayla Mayory. stay tuned as we'll be sharing highlights from this episode on our own channels at slow stories official on instagram and at slow stories pod on twitter i'm rachel schwartzman and you've been listening to slow stories thank you so much for tuning
1: in